Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim, mostly because we get to bring back our favorite holiday of the year, which is Halloween. And finally, we're getting to this topic that has been circulating in our discussions and all of our content that we have coming up. We just couldn't get to this during the Halloween season. So it's coming in a little late, but it's super interesting, something that I never thought would be as interesting as it is. But Tim, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks a lot for asking. Yes, and this research today comes from Bhumika Sharma. So big shout out to Bhumika. And today we're going over some of these crimes associated with egg throwing. Um, and it, And it is typically associated with Halloween and Mischief Night. So sometimes teenagers or people in their young 20s will throw eggs at each other or egg establishments or things like that. Did you ever get into such mischief when you were a young lad? Oh, wow. Tim, I was just about to ask you the same question. I unfortunately had my fair share of egging and toilet paper decorating, as as I'll call it. Uh, maybe, <laughs> yep. I don't want to say vandalism. I don't want to go that far. Uh, it was tastefully done. Unfortunately, I did take part in that, but hey, small town, Halloween, it was kind of a tradition. How about you? Yeah, one time I went out with my friends egging, and I guess I was past trick-or-treat age. I don't know, I was probably 14 or something, and I really don't remember much about the night um, except getting hit with an egg in my shin and that hurting really badly, like worse than I would have thought. (laughs) Um, But that's kind of all I remember of it. Was it a hard-boiled egg? (laughs) I don't think so. But while these stories aren't too harmful, there are stories that we're going to go over in just a moment that that are. Before we do, we're going to break quick for commercial, and we'll be right back with The Egging Murders. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. So Halloween, Lance, it's a night of costumes, candy, and sometimes harmless pranks. But what happens when a seemingly harmless Halloween tradition takes a deadly turn? Well, Tim, in New York City, something as innocent as throwing eggs on Halloween has led to serious harm and even deaths. You wouldn't think that this would. But since 1984, there have been at least... 24 cases where people were badly hurt or killed because of egg-throwing pranks. And the pattern is similar in each case. A group of teenagers toss eggs at people, cars, or houses, but when the targets try to stop them or confront the troublemakers, things take a violent turn. I guess we can consider ourselves lucky then when we were in our youth and we were doing this, and no one really tried to retaliate back then, but... What we're going to be talking about today is exactly what you said. It's not the egging so much as it is the aftermath. And egging is such 
a big problem on Halloween that in Queens, New York, some police stations asked stores not to sell eggs or shaving cream to young people during Halloween week. The Juniper Park Civic Association also gives posters to stores that say no eggs. I mean, what if you're just going out to buy eggs for your family as a kid? I mean, do you have to just risk it? You suffer. No, you can't You can't get your eggs all because of this mischief. I remember that, actually, uh, absolutely being a thing um, when this, I believe this only one year when I tried to go egging, they were, uh, they were not available to kids. So yeah, this is a good time to remind our listeners that uh, sometimes harmless pranks can have severe consequences. So during Halloween 1994, we're going to talk about Pedro Ramos here. He was 12 years old. And his younger siblings, Nelson, Max, and Crystal, were part of a joyful family living in Brooklyn. And he was a sixth grader at Intermediate School 111. And Pedro was passionate about playing baseball, and he was great at it. He was a pitcher and a first baseman for the Police Athletic League in the 83rd Precinct. He and his team won championships three years in a row and earned several trophies for their achievements. And one thing his friends and family could say about him with certainty was that he was always happy. But on October 29th, 1994, in Brooklyn, there was a pre-Halloween egg fight involving about a dozen boys on Wickoff and DeKalb Avenues at about 9.35 p.m. And those kids were all around 12 years old and were just having fun, tossing eggs at each other and not anybody else. And a man named Victor Diaz, who was a bartender at the White Shutter Inn on 98 Wickoff Avenue, witnessed the entire thing that happened after. And two men, 31-year-old Faustino Cruz and 20-year-old Roberto Delgado, entered Diaz's bar, and it seemed like they had been drinking. They asked for a case of beer, but Victor refused to serve them. After that, they walked into the street where the egg fight was happening, and one of them got hit with an egg, possibly in the head. And he became enraged and somehow grabbed Pedro, who wasn't even throwing eggs at this point. He had just been accompanying his friend. The man who had caught Pedro had him in a tight hold when the other man approached and stabbed Pedro in his groin. And Pedro started crying for help. People could hear him say, help, I've been stabbed. And as Pedro stumbled away, badly hurt, one man ran away, but the other man didn't stop. He kept kicking and hitting Pedro according to people who witnessed the entire thing. And two people stepped in to stop the man. They held him until two transit police officers arrested him. And this information was shared by Captain William Plankenmeyer from the New York Police Department's Brooklyn Detective Bureau. Unfortunately, Pedro didn't make it. He passed away during surgery at Wickoff Heights Medical Center at around 7 a.m. on October 30th, 94. Oh, my God. 12 years old. Yeah, that is horrible. Oh, and getting stabbed in the groin. I mean, this is just an individual who just let the alcohol-fueled rage just take over. I mean, couldn't get a grip on 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 this like rage that they had. That's awful. And Pedro's mother, Nora Caradero, couldn't believe that her son was dead. She said, "How could they do that to a skinny 12-year-old boy?" And she wanted to have her son's assailants get life sentences. She said, I don't want them to walk on the same ground. My son will be six feet under. And Roberto Delgado from Brooklyn told police that he worked as a handyman when he was in custody facing this uh, first-degree assault charge. 
and police found that he didn't have any prior criminal record. But on the other hand, Faustino Cruz, a truck driver who lived at 420 Melrose Ave in Brooklyn, was arrested at a social club in Bushwick and charged with second-degree murder. Fortunate that they caught the two individuals and charged with second-degree murder. But do you think it's... How do you balance having a fun evening on Halloween where you're having a egg egg war type fight with your friends to estimating the potential danger of this seemingly harmless prank? I mean, you can't accurately balance between the two. You can't say don't throw eggs because two incredibly drunk individuals who have violent streaks will interject themselves in this activity and there could be some serious repercussions. I mean, that at what point do you stop minimizing risks that are so, the odds of them happening are so astronomically low? Yeah, I don't know. I guess if you're having an egg fight in the street in New York City, I mean, somebody else or some car or someone's property is going to get hit um, just naturally. So I don't know, maybe try to move it to a park or something. But even then, you're probably still going to have overthrows that make it onto the sidewalk or the street in New York City. Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough. I don't have kids, so I don't even know how I would begin to parent that. Hey, if you're going to go have an egg fight, I'm going to say don't do it, first of all. But if, if you do, take it to a place where you're not going to potentially hit someone else or, you know, involve anybody else that isn't going to take it like a prank. So we're going to stay in the year 1994, Halloween 1994, for our second story, which also involves DeKalb Avenue. And we have Angel Lopez Almodovar, who worked as a mechanic at a store there. The area was quiet because the shop owners were closing early to avoid the inevitable violence on Halloween, which was just as old of a tradition as trick-or-treating and dressing up. Angel was walking on Knickerbocker Street in Brooklyn holding a red and black tricycle he had just bought for his four-year-old son. A group of teenagers, some wearing masks, approached him and started throwing eggs at him. Now this is one of those ones where this is deliberate. In response, Angel threw a broken bottle hitting one of the teens. This made that teen very angry and he left briefly but returned with a handgun. The teenagers surrounded Angel, and the young person with the gun shot him in the stomach. After the shooting, the teenagers quickly dispersed. Angel was then rushed to Woodhall Medical Center, but unfortunately, he didn't survive. Officer Mary Persall, a police spokesperson, revealed that he was pronounced dead at 8.52 p.m. And the kids were scared to go to school, play outside, or even attend therapy because Angel's case was the second murder in three days that was the result of Halloween games and pranks. Tim, I believe you just gave us one of those three. Yeah, it's shocking that these happened the same year. According to Dr. John Burgess, a child psychiatrist, around 10 to 12 of his young patients canceled their therapy sessions on Halloween because they were too scared to go outside. And even in some neighborhoods, people decided it was safer to stay indoors and not open their doors to give out Halloween candy. Even in apartment buildings, some tenants didn't answer their doorbells, even though the only visitors were kids known by the building's superintendent. And Tim, I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the movie The Crow, but that came out in 1994. And there are elements of that where it's this like hell night, where it's this night of violence. And I'm wondering if that had anything to do with the series of violent activities that happened on Halloween in 1994. 
94 in the in this area uh i don't want to place blame on anything but that's where my head went first like what was it that sparked a series of violent acts on one night in in a close location and close proximity yeah great question i don't know um I do recall the movie The Crow being very influential to kids, um, uh, teenagers at, at that time period. But uh, I don't know. It seems like this is like a, a really uh, bad problem in New York City and not as much outside of New York City. Yeah, at least with these stories that we're talking about now, it's been focused in the New York City area. So police couldn't find any suspects in the Knickerbocker Avenue case. The investigation stalled for nine whole months and they finally arrested 20-year-old Hector Suarez on the night of July 13th, 1995, charged him with the second-degree murder. Yeah, and our researcher here, Bumika, mentions the song Eggman by the Beastie Boys, who were you know, famously uh, from Brooklyn and, and popular in New York City around that time. I think this Eggman song came out in 1989, and it is about uh, throwing eggs. Yeah, I wonder if that had some some impact in the culture there. I looked out the window, seeing this bull head. Ran through the fridge and pulled out an egg. Scoped over my scopes, he had no hair. Lost that shot, he was caught out there. Saw the convertible driving by. Loaded up the slingshot, let one fly. He went for his to find, he didn't have one. Put him in check to wreck my egg gun. Egg, a symbol of life. A course that dies Yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean... I'm not, again, blaming media and movies and the influence that they have on individuals, but this is directly related to egging and the Beastie Boys from the late 80s to, I mean, the the late 90s, I mean, early 2000s. 1994 was like their height of popularity. They were hugely popular. So I could see that being something that would influence adolescents into taking part in these pranks like egging. And we did mention The Crow as well. So a combination of these things, right? And Halloween, the energy of the whole thing. I don't know if it's like a blame or responsibility, but factors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some kind of influence. Now we're going to jump forward to Halloween 1998. And there's a fellow named Carl Jackson, who was 21 at the time, led a regular life and had a loving mom named Gloria who worked as a nurse and a dad, Carl Sr., with a steady job at the post office. Carl had his job as a data entry clerk at Morgan Stanley, and he was a bit of a quiet guy and usually didn't go out on Halloween. Now, some people might think that's a little bit strange, but he thought that going out on Halloween was just a little bit too risky and once again, this story takes place in New York City, so I do wonder if the culture of Mischief Night is just a little bit more dangerous in hyper-populated New York City. Yeah, and we're talking just four years removed from the night where multiple incidents happened, so Carl's train of thought here is kind of what my train of thought would be at that time. If you don't have to go out, don't go out. It's just unfortunate that we hear these stories where someone says, I'm not going to do this because it's too risky or I'm afraid of this because I hear these stories and then it happens to them. Super tragic. Yeah, it is. And so Halloween night, 1998, Carl was with his girlfriend Darlene and they needed to pick up her nine-year-old son Clyde from a kid's party near Gun Hill Road in the Bronx. And even though Carl wasn't a big fan of Halloween, he wanted to make Darlene and Clyde happy, so they went. 
and the party was fun. Everyone had a good time. But on the way back, as Carl was driving, some rowdy teenagers thought it would be fun or funny to throw eggs at Carl's car. But uh, things got dark, and Carl didn't want to let it go and decided to tell off these teenagers. But this simple chat got out of hand pretty quickly, and it turned into a heated argument. So at this point, Carl thought it was best to leave, and he got back into the car, into the passenger's seat. But the teenagers were not ready to let it go, and one of them pulled out a gun and approached the car, and he actually shot Carl in the head. And it was only 11.15 p.m. when Carl lost his life in Crotona Park in the Bronx. And shortly after that, he was declared dead at Jacoby Medical Center. My God. I mean, can you imagine this? Awful, huh? Awful. Awful. You have your your girlfriend in the car. You have her nine-year-old son in the car. And that's old enough to resonate for oh, ever in this mm-hmm. in this little boy's head. I mean, that's how he's remembering Halloween now is the night that this happened. Uh, I don't know how close they were, but that's going to be super traumatic. Yeah. And the police were determined to find the person responsible, and they soon identified the young man who had pulled the trigger as Curtis Sterling. He was 17 years old at the time, and he received a 20-year sentence and was sent to state prison in Ulster County. Interesting. What do you make of 20 years? I mean, this is kind of cold-blooded murder here. Is 20 years enough or... It is cold-blooded murder. You're right. Um, Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it seems a little light to me, to be honest, but I I don't really know. Maybe his age had something to do with it, 17 years old. so Yeah, his brain's not developed yet, I guess. But still, I mean, poor Carl lost his life. And uh, every October, Curtis receives a unique Halloween card from Carl's mother, Gloria. So this is just another way that this crime affects people so many years later. And these cards have a simple message. I'm glad you're still there. Wow. Wow. So Carl's mom, Gloria, sends Curtis a Halloween message while he's in jail for this. Yeah. It says, I'm glad you're still there. Yeah. And apparently Gloria couldn't even talk about her son's death for two years. Um, wow. She finally did a little bit, but yeah. Wow, could you imagine being Curtis and receiving that every year? I mean, just reinforcing the mistake you made and the life you took. Part of me is kind of like aligned with that. Yeah, I mean, I would hope he's thinking about that every day while he's in jail, you know? Wow. And Carl's sister, Carolyn Jackson, was expecting a baby when her brother was shot. And now her son, Carl's nephew, is 24 years old. And every Halloween which marks the anniversary of Carl's passing, his family gathers at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, and they write messages to him and leave painted stones at his grave. And Carl's grandmother, Sally Bagley, still keeps a pair of his shoes at the top of her stairway as a cherished memory. Oh, my. What a story. 21 years old. Just getting his life started. Yeah, so tragic. And affects so many people. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. All right, Lance, take us to 2005. All right. So Halloween 2005, we have Joseph, Padro, and Maria. They shared their lives together in a marriage that lasted 14 years. And during this time, they built a family and became parents to two children. 
Their three-year-old child had a strong bond with his father and found it difficult to sleep without his presence. Joseph was a dedicated provider for the family, tirelessly working as a private sanitation worker to ensure his family had everything they needed and that their children could grow up in a loving and supportive environment. His life was centered around his family and he took great pride in being a husband and a father. It's also important to note that Joseph Padro's brother is a New York Police Department detective named Carlos. On October 29, 2005, Joseph Padro, who was 31 years old at the time, was driving his red minivan through Mott Haven. Some teenagers decided it would be a good prank to throw eggs at the minivan, and in response, Joseph stopped and asked them to clean up the egg mess on his van. What exactly unfolded next is a matter of dispute, though, because according to one retelling the events, one of the teenagers, a 15-year-old named Jeffrey Ivey, who was in special education classes, went to his 17-year-old friend Eric Fuller's apartment. He asked Eric if the gun was still there. Eric retrieved a 38 caliber pistol and was about to put it in his pocket when Jeffrey grabbed it away from him. So as Joseph pursued the vandals into an apartment building, Jeffrey took charge and shot him in the back, in the leg, and in the head. Joseph was quickly rushed to Lincoln Hospital. Doctors kept him on life support for several days before his passing. Subsequent to his passing, Joseph's organs, such as his heart, liver, kidneys, and pancreas, were all donated to help five people in desperate need. Now, he said that the doctors kept him on life support for several days, but the three-day vigil where he was on life support came to an end when his family did decide to turn off the life support machines at Lincoln Hospital and allow the doctors to take his healthy organs. The family had initially hoped that one of Joseph's kidneys could help an ailing 18-year-old friend who happened to be the nephew of former world champion boxer Iran Barkley. Unfortunately, it turned out they weren't a compatible match. Joseph's wife, Maria, expressed her feelings, saying, quote, I have so much hate right now. I wish him the worst. He deserves the stiffest penalty. And while Joseph was on life support before he passed away, she also stated that if her husband passed away, she believed his killer deserved the death penalty. Tragically, back in 1999, Maria's 14-year-old daughter, Yahara, lost her life in a car accident, which occurred just outside the same housing project where her husband was shot. Oh, no. That's way too much tragedy for this family. Instead, all of Joseph's valuable organs were given to anonymous recipients on a waiting list. One kidney was given to a 16-year-old boy, and the other went to a 35-year-old woman, as reported by the New York Organ Donor Network. And this is astonishing here. Joseph's heart was transplanted into a 25-year-old man and his liver was given to a 58-year-old man. Officials were still working to determine the recipient for Joseph's pancreas. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, well, that, that is nice that, uh, that Joseph's organs were, were able to be given to people in need. Um, it seems like Joseph was a very giving person and uh, certainly that way in death as well. Yeah, it, in addition to the organs, Joseph's family also chose to donate some of his body tissues, which could potentially help many other people. The donations included things like his eyes, veins, skin, and bones. His wife, Maria, wanted to share with the recipients that Joseph was an exceptionally good person, known for being respectful and filled with happiness. He always offered help to anyone in need, 
and he would give his very last if he could to benefit someone else. And that's how he was in life, and apparently that's how he was and is and how his family is in his passing as well. That is a wild story. So I hope um, these two uh, men, Jeffrey and Eric, were arrested. Well, Jeffrey Ivey was charged as an adult with second-degree murder, and Eric Fuller was charged with weapons possession. Both were held without bail. James Ward, Jeffrey Ivey's 24-year-old brother, explained that Fuller provided to Ivey. James Ward, Jeffrey Ivey's 24-year-old brother, explained that Eric Fuller provided to Ivey, who is in the eighth grade at two years below his grade level, with the gun and instructed him to fire. He mentioned that his brother is not exceptionally bright and can be influenced by older individuals, clarifying that his brother did not possess the gun himself. It was given to him by the person he was with who instructed him to shoot. So, yeah, that one's a little bit more complicated with some possible coercion and and things like that. But, yeah, no less tragic. And another New York story took place near Halloween 2008. David Diaz, who was a budding footballer, was only 19 and had moved from Harlem to the Bronx. And he was back in his old neighborhood with friends when they were up to some egg-throwing mischief from a rooftop on West 135th Street. And so apparently they hit some people down on the street. And when one of the folks that they hit or or came close to um, came up onto the roof with a knife... The kids ran away, and David, who had his right arm in a sling because of a football injury, tried to escape by leaping over what he thought was a wall between the buildings, and sadly, he didn't safely land on the other side. Instead, he fell six stories down into a courtyard. Oh my God, that is the worst fear. When you reflect back on like dumb things that you've done in your childhood or in your adolescence when you're a teenager or whatever, if you did something just like spontaneously... I mean, that is, uh, what an awful feeling. Yeah, so awful. And uh, David Ruiz, the building's tenant association president, explained that all they heard were loud noises like boom, boom. He said that David Diaz had hit an air conditioner and then landed on the ground floor. And his fingerprints were still visible on the window near the air conditioning unit where he had desperately tried to hold on to something as he was falling. And even though he was injured, David used hand signals to convey that he had been running and fell off the roof. And he was strong, and he kept trying to sit up. But unfortunately, he had suffered two broken legs and was quickly taken to St. Luke's Hospital in critical condition. And he did pass away on the morning of November 3rd, 2008, to multiple injuries. And in the aftermath, David's mom, Rosa Diaz, who was very upset, told the news that he was my baby. He was a good boy. They were just fooling around, and this shouldn't have happened. This is terrible. I want to find peace. And Pablo Rosario, the coach of the Harlem Jaguars community football team that David was a part of, spent the day having his team sign a football. He said, I am just going to take it to his mother. Hopefully, she'll decide to let him take it with him. End quote. I guess that... He meant in the grave. Um, My gosh. So the reason that David was running in the first place was because one of the people that the eggs came close to had a knife, right? So did they ever catch this person? I mean, it must have been extremely difficult if everybody's sort of running. and, And I'm sure the person with the knife didn't even know that David fell off the building. 
Maybe. I, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't have any information from a researcher or in a quick uh, Google search about it. Um, so I'm not sure if they ever found the person with the knife. And furthermore, I'm not really sure what that person would have been charged with had they caught the person. I know, because wouldn't you even be able to say that this was, in a sense, self-defense? I mean, you're being struck with objects that you know kind of goes beyond what the object is i know it's an egg but that's intent to harm right so maybe there could be some sort of defense of uh like a self-defense defense yeah i just don't know i wonder if you know going up to the roof would have changed a charge you know right engaging with them yeah like going so far out of your way up those stairs or whatnot right still super tragic yeah, that's awful. And a question before we wrap, Tim, that I just wanted to present is something that we brought up earlier as well. Like, to what extent should parents be held responsible for their children's actions when they engage in pranks that cause harm like this? On one hand, you don't want to completely shelter your child. You want to make sure that they know the dangers of these pranks and I guess like the realities of the world. You know, not everyone thinks it's funny to be hit with an egg. People are going to get upset with that. So I just don't know, like, how much responsibility should parents be held to? It's a great question. Obviously, the lesson of consequences is something that kids need to learn. And I guess that lesson really being like, you don't know what the consequences of your actions are until after you do them. So, you know, it's it's wise to think things through. But I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of kids, especially teenagers, certainly when I was, when I had my egging year on mischief night, like my parents didn't know. Like, it's not like they bought me the eggs, you know? No, how are they going to know if the kid doesn't tell them? That's maybe a cop-out answer, and I'm not trying to do that. But I think just some education, just talking to your kids about these things um, would be helpful. It's, it's, It's at least a good first step. I think you nailed it right there with the talking to your kids, giving them the information that they need to make that decision in the moment, and then having faith in them, having trust that they'll make that right decision. I'm happy that we're able to tell these stories while they were all very tragic. At least there is something that we can be taking from them. Well, be careful if you're doing something as drastic as throwing eggs at strangers or or anything like that. You know, I, I know mischief or, or fun for you and your friend group, uh, is, is one thing, but maybe, you know, try to keep that contained to you and your friend group. Don't extend that beyond because, again, you, you're not going to know what the consequences will be until after a mistake is made. And another big thanks to Bumika Sharma for putting this together. We look forward to more of her research in future episodes. <laughs> 